Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. This podcast has a simple mission, to have discussions that reveal something important about life and how best to live it. My guests range from the biggest sporting names on the planet through to neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists and world-renowned thinkers. We talk about things like how to skillfully relate to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, the power of acceptance and psychological flexibility, how to get your circadian rhythms in sync to feel your best, right through to the nature of reality. These conversations and the bite-sized episodes have the power to change your life. We spend a third of our lives asleep, so what if we could use that time to heal, to learn, and to grow. That's what this episode's all about because Charlie Morley is a teacher of lucid dreaming, which is when you're asleep and in a dream, but you know that you are dreaming and you can start to consciously direct your dream at will. It's a practice that's been used for thousands of years by the likes of Tibetan Buddhists and Sufi mystics, to name just a few. And science has recently caught up to prove the power of lucid dreaming. And Charlie's all about showing people how to harness that. He was recently awarded a Churchill Fellowship Research Grant to work with military veterans to help them manage traumas and other challenges through lucid dreaming. And Charlie shares some simple things you can do to start lucid dreaming and reaping the benefits tonight. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Charlie Morley, really lovely to see you. How are you? I'm very good, thanks, mate. How are you? I'm very well. Now, you are a lucid dream teacher, both a very cool job and a niche one. First of all, what is a lucid dream? Just a headline. And second of all, what does a lucid dream teacher do? Okay, so a lucid dream is a dream where you're in the dream and you know that you're dreaming. And then once you know that you're dreaming, you can choose to direct the dream at will. So most people will have had a few of those in their life. Some people, maybe one in a hundred, are kind of natural lucid dreamers. My job as a lucid dreaming teacher is I write books about sleep and lucid dreaming and then run workshops, seminars and retreats teaching people how to do this. Not only teaching them how to get lucid, but teaching them how to get lucid and then engage a specific plan for psychological growth or uh, healing within the lucid dream. Psychological growth and healing are very possible. They are key components of skillful lucid dreaming, right? 
Yeah, so we've got all the science on this. I mean, lucid dreaming is like an ancient craft. You find it in Tibetan Buddhism going back at least a thousand years. You find it in Sufism going back 500 years. Toltec Mexica traditions, shamanic traditions, a thousand years. But science has caught up from the kind of 80s onwards. And all of this stuff is fully verified science. I mean, we can say without doubt that through lucid dreaming, you can rewire your brain while you sleep. And that is very, very cool. Okay, we're going to come back to the science and the benefits you can get in terms of dealing with trauma, in terms of ridding yourself of addictions, growth, improving performance, spiritual growth, etc, etc. But I just want to talk a little bit more about you, Charlie, a bit of context on you, because you're an interesting character. Those handsome good looks of yours landed you a a job as the Connect Four kid back in the day, for starters. (laughs) No one ever Second mentioned of all, that on a, a black... podcast before. <laughs> hey, first time. You're also a black belt kickboxer, but I know mm-hmm. you're all about the love as well. So that's an interesting juxtaposition. And a, a long-standing Buddhist. So my question is, we'll skip over the Connect Four stuff because I think that speaks for itself. Um, <laughs> but uh, what drew you to Buddhism when you were a teenager, I think? Yeah, it's actually linked to the to the uh, martial arts thing. So I was 15 years old. And I guess at that time, you're kind of asking questions about consciousness and what's going on in the world. And I started to get this idea that there's got to be something kind of more than what's going on. I was smoking quite a lot of weed at the time, too. And that was kind of opening up my mind to these things. But the Buddhist thing was a, a, a kind of a confluence of several influences. One was Wu-Tang Clan. I was really into hip hop. I was in like a live hip hop group as the one of the rappers and we were listening to loads of Wu-Tang. Now, the samples at the beginning of Wu-Tang uh, albums, like 36 Chambers, for example, are actually from the Taoist tradition. But I didn't know that. I thought they were like Buddhist quotes at the beginning. So suddenly I was, oh, Wu-Tang are down with Buddhism, like Buddhism's OK. And then in London, the Shaolin monks were performing at the Peacock Theatre back in, God, like 1998 or something, 99. And I went to see them and they were doing these amazing, you know, Kung Fu shows and jumping, amazing jumps and her one finger press ups. I remember they were doing. So I was like, wow, Buddhists are cool, man. Like Wu-Tang think they're cool. The Shaolin monks look really cool. So I want to get into this. And then it was Christmas before the millennium. So this is like, yeah, 1999. And I had a five pound gift voucher from my nan. And we were in Heathrow Airport and there wasn't a lot you could actually get for a fiver. But on this table like the display table with this book by the Dalai Lama called The Art of Happiness. Now, at that time, I thought the Dalai Lama was like the head of the Shaolin Kung Fu guys. So I thought, oh, maybe it will have some Kung Fu as well as happiness, which I was wrong about. Um, But I read this book and it was a long journey. We're flying to Australia um, via somewhere else. And, you know, the myth I have in my head is when we arrived in Australia, I knew I was a Buddhist. I'm sure it wasn't quite that clear cut, but I did read that book cover to cover and I remember I was 15 turning 16 and I was like, yeah, I disagree with everything this guy is saying. Everything he's saying, I agree with. So I had this idea like, yeah, I really want to be a Buddhist. But he kept on talking about, um, you know, not no intoxicants and stuff like that, about all these vows that Buddhists took. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm like 16. Like, I don't want to, I, I need to kind of party. I want to do that. So I made this decision. Like, I remember clearly making a decision. I went, right. Throughout college, sixth form college, so 16 to 18, I'm going to just party. I'm going to put Buddhism on the sideline and just go for it. And I did. Did loads of psychedelics, went to raves, like, you know, really wild, wild times. A lot of it, which is quite regrettable, actually, but it it did. When I look at it, it's all kind of part of the story, I guess. Um, And then I made this commitment that the day I left college, 
I would shave my head. I had long hair, long ponytail. I'd shave my head. I'd become a vegetarian and I'd start going to the Buddhist center. And I did it. There I left college. I shaved my head. I gave it to this thing called Locks of Love, which make um, like wigs for kids with, you know, who've had cancer treatment and stuff. And I kind of became a vegetarian and kind of became a Buddhist. It took a few years to ease into that stuff. But yeah. And then when I was 19, I took refuge, which is where you formally become a Buddhist. That's where you get a new name. They take a bit of your hair. Um, you take certain vows. And then a few years after that, I end up living in a Buddhist temple for seven years with the monks and nuns. And throughout all of that, I was getting in. I'd, I'd been into lucid dreaming when I was like 15 at that time where I was exploring consciousness. But from like 15 to 18, I was just using it for sex and skateboarding. You know, I was a 16 year old kid who learned that, wow, you can become conscious in your dreams and then choose what to happen. Well, of course, I'm going to choose to be really good at skateboarding and, and have loads of sex. But then when I got into Buddhism, they kept on talking about this term dream yoga, specific to, to Tibetan Buddhism, dream yoga. And I said, what is dream yoga? And then I remember this monk saying it's the spiritual practice of lucid dreaming. And at this time, I'd only used lucid dreaming for sex and skateboarding. So I remember being kind of laughing a bit at him and being, what are monks lucid dreaming? I know what I use lucid dreaming for. And he was like, oh, we use lucid dreaming to prepare for the moment of our death. We use it to do our spiritual practice in our sleep. And we use it to explore the dreamlike nature of reality. And I remember feeling both kind of weird feeling like shocked, embarrassed, and also this feeling of big potential in that moment. I was like, whoa, there's this thing that I've trained myself to be pretty good at for all the wrong reasons, which now apparently is part of Buddhism, this thing that I'm now really into, but it's a spiritual practice. So these things came together and I thought, this is cool, man. So then I started training with some Buddhist teachers who were teaching lucid dreaming. And then I met Lama Yeshe Rinpoche and then ended up living in the center and eventually teaching. That's a beautiful story. Lovely serendipity about it. So just quickly, which form of Buddhism was yours? And also, what is the, would you say, is the key tenet, the key principle underlying that particular form of Buddhism? Sure. So I got into Tibetan Buddhism, um, which is a form of Vajrayana Buddhism which is like the third turning of, of the wheel. And within Tibetan Buddhism, there's like four major schools and all these sub-schools and stuff like that. And I took refuge in the Karma Kagyu school of Tibetan Buddhism. Um, I guess the main thing about Vajrayana Tibetan Buddhism compared to the other schools of Buddhism is this idea of enlightenment in one lifetime. So the other schools of Buddhism say, you know, full spiritual enlightenment and high levels of awakening are absolutely possible, uh, but they can take quite a few lifetimes to train. Tibetan Buddhism says, no, no, it is possible in one lifetime, uh, but you need to use every waking and sleeping moment for enlightened practice. And that's why there's such a big focus on the dream work. It said, yeah, it's impossible to get enlightened in one lifetime if you spend a third of your life conked out. But if you spend a third of your life sleeping, not sleeping normally, but sleeping with enlightened action, like lucid dreaming, conscious sleeping, astral projection, all of these elements of, of dream yoga, then it is possible. So really at the core of Tibetan Buddhism, one of the big differences, not only enlightenment in one lifetime, but beneath that, how do we reach enlightenment in one lifetime? Partially through the sleep practices. So I was like, this is brilliant. There's this, there's this form of Buddhism that's got this big focus on dream work. We'll come back to enlightenment and just flesh that word out a little bit later. <laughs> Don't ask me. But mate. let's get get into uh, let's get into the the science of it a little bit because even though it's been practiced, for example, within Tibetan Buddhism for a thousand years, 
actually science has only caught up really recently, hasn't it? Until what, a couple of decades ago, a few decades ago, there was this view, this belief that actually it was impossible to be awake while you're asleep, conscious while you're unconscious. Yeah, the 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 prevailing scientific view was it's uh, it's a uh, it's a paradox. How how could you be conscious uh, within the unconscious? But in 1975, at Hull University in the UK, actually the the Brits were the first to prove it. Uh, they proved for the first time. A guy called Keith Hearn and Alan Wolseley was his test subject. Uh, they proved lucid dreaming for the first time. And the way they did it, they had to prove that someone was conscious enough in the dream to be aware of the outside world. I mean, that's a difficult, they were like, that's the only way we'll believe it. And it was like, come on, how the hell are you going to do that? And this guy, Keith Hearn, who was working at um, uh, Hull University, he thought maybe we can do some sort of signal where once the person becomes lucid in their dream, they can kind of uh, flex their pinky. So he did loads of studies trying to on putting things on the pinky to see if they could work. It didn't work. And then one day he was looking at this guy having a lucid dream and he saw his eyes flicking left, right, left, right. And when they woke them, And they asked what the guy was dreaming about. He was dreaming about watching a tennis match. And they realized for the first time, oh, so once you're lucid, the rapid eye movements of dreaming sleep actually become less random and start to correlate with what you are looking at in the lucid dream. So they thought, cool, so maybe we can do it through eye movements. So they said, look, once you become lucid and they've got the brain scanners on them, the eye movement sensors, um, they've got kind of muscle tone things, basically things to check the person's actually asleep and dreaming and not awake. Uh, and they said, look, once you know you're lucid, communicate to me in the sleep lab through a series of like Morse code eye movements, you know, two flicks to the left, one up, pause, one down, you know, compl- you couldn't be uh, couldn't be random movements, pre-selected eye movements. Uh, and they did that in 1975. They got that and they saw the kind of on the graphs. It's kind of like, a you know, one of those old lie detector machines with the ink on paper, uh, but you can clearly see the eye movements. Um, so that was kind of mid 70s. Then in the early 80s, Stanford University, the of course very famous Stephen LeBerge, did very similar tests, but he got his peer reviewed. He got his, uh, you know, published in, in reputable journals. So he takes a lot of credit, but he did it first. Uh, but the real breakthrough came in 2010, 2011. This is when, for the first time, they managed to record the brain signature of someone having a lucid dream in an fMRI scanner. So the early reports were with EEG. So you're looking at brain waves. fMRI is like a live image of the brain. And what they knew was that when you're in rapid eye movement, dreaming sleep, there's very little blood flow to the prefrontal cortex. Your prefrontal cortex is almost entirely offline. The prefrontal cortex is where the neuroscientists anyway would say your sense of agency, your sense of self, your sense of I am having an experience are located. Of course, I'd say they're not located there. That's nuts. But they may be. Uh, there may be activation there when they're engaged. But anyway, they say they're located there. So because the prefrontal cortex is disengaged when you have a non-lucid dream, that's why you can have such crazy dreams. You ever thought, God, that dream I had where I was the Queen of England. How didn't I know I was the Queen of England? How didn't I become lucid? Well, because in that moment, your sense of self, your sense of Simonness, was offline. So the dream could present you with a different sense of self and you would accept it as your reality. And this is what's happening every time we have a non-lucid dream. We are believing our internally generated hallucinations to be real. Now that's psychosis. And uh, I mean, uh, William Dement, one of the brilliant sleep scientists, he said, uh, show, you show me dreaming, I'll show you psychosis. Uh, and it is, we go kind of mad every time we dream. So the brilliant thing is when you become lucid, it's like an antipsychotic. Because when you become lucid, you go, hang on. 
I'm not really the Queen of England. I'm Charlie dreaming I'm the Queen of England. So now I've gone from the insanity of believing my internally generated hallucinations to be real to the true sanity of seeing them as they are, simply hallucination. And there lies the core, core benefit of lucid dreaming within the Tibetan tradition and a lot of the spiritual traditions, which is that every time you have a lucid dream, you are training yourself to recognize illusion. You're training yourself to no longer be duped by the very realistic hallucinations that the brain presents us with. And it said that if you have enough of those experiences in the nighttime, eventually they will flow over like drops of a, uh, you know, drops of water in a bucket eventually overflow. They'll overflow into the waking state and you will see through the inherent illusion of the self. And that would be synonymous with awakening. Now I'm still waiting on that one, but <laughs> apparently it's a potential. So Heidelberg University, they managed to get this dude to fall asleep in inside an fMRI scanner. Now I've been in a couple of those, these meditation studies. They used to come to the Buddhist center and they wanted to check the brains of people who've done some meditation. I'm sure I was, I'd done nothing to my brain. But they're loud fMRIs. They like spin around this magnet, go duck, 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 rucka, duck. So how this dude fell asleep, I have no idea, let alone have a lucid dream, but he did. And you can see this on the, on they've got video footage of this. You see the brain, live image, and the prefrontal cortex, they're just no lights. It's just dark, right? And then suddenly it lights up like a Christmas tree. Lights up for about 30 seconds, then the entire brain lights up because they've woken him up. And his subjective report was, I, I was having a lucid dream. They had got the brain to uh, the, the brain imagery to correspond with that. So they uh, concluded that, yes, lucid dreaming is absolutely valid. Uh, it is the reactivation of the prefrontal cortex uh, within the seemingly unconscious uh, rapid eye movement dream state. And once they saw what part of the brain was lighting up, then it became really interesting because they were like, hang on, if the prefrontal cortex is lighting up, then as far as the brain is concerned, it thinks you're awake. So once you're lucid, the brain doesn't think you're sleeping anymore. It thinks you're awake. And because it thinks you're awake, because wakefulness for the brain, of course, is not predicated upon having your eyes open. This is very interesting for anyone who's into simulation theory. As far as the brain's concerned, wakefulness is predicated on prefrontal cortex activation. So once that part of the brain's activated, the brain starts laying down neural pathways and neuroplasticity in exactly the same way as it does when you're awake. Meaning, like I said at the beginning, you can literally re rewire your brain as you sleep. And some of the first experiments they did were with athletes. Because athletes, you can have a really good idea of like, did they get better or worse? You know, you can look at their performance ratio. So they basically check like how good were people at doing squats in the waking state. Then they taught them lucid dreaming, it took weeks to teach them lucid dreaming. And then out of all the cool things they're allowed to do in their lucid dreams, you know, meet God, commune with their higher self, they, were, they had to do bloody squats in their dreams. Uh, anyway, long story short, they found that by training squats in the lucid dream, they got better at squats in the waking state. Uh, so it, it, it seems that actually by what you do in the lucid dream is not just a dream anymore. You're not imagining it. As far as the brain's concerned, you're doing it. And it actually rewires itself uh, based on what you do in the lucid dream. Wow. So that's those people doing squats, as you say, not the most necessarily the best use of time yeah. uh, in the broadest sense of the word, but still pretty instructive and, and pretty easy to get your head around. A couple of things that, that came to my mind were, first of all, when we're dreaming and the prefrontal cortex goes offline and the Simon and his story or the Charlie and the Charlie story goes offline, First of all, the implication, therefore, is that if it can go offline, that means the Charlie story and the Simon story are not our fundamental identity, our fundamental Very reality. That's point. part one. And then part two would be, didn't they do the fMRI 
study at the Max Planck Institute. That's right. And, the, and Max Planck is the guy who said that he views consciousness as fundamental. We'll have to get into definitions oh, of these words. But con- consciousness is fundamental and that matter is derivative from consciousness, which is another really nice serendipity. That's good. Yeah, and I had never noticed that. That's very cool. And no one's ever pointed that before. I really like that. Your first statement, this is interesting. So it does prove that the story of who we think we are is simply illusory. And yet, think of how many dreams you've had as the Queen of England compared to how many dreams you had as Simon. The vast majority of our dreams, we are ourselves. We look like ourselves, the people that we know are in our dreams or from our past are in our dreams. We're kind of doing stuff as, as us. And you think, well, how does that work if the prefrontal cortex is switched off? Well, because the dreams are based on, uh, in large part, stuff from our memories, right? And we only have memory of being ourselves. So most of the dream content is still based on this uh, illusory story that we have told ourselves about who we are. But once you're lucid, you can then really flip that on its head, partly because in a lucid dream, and this is quite a lot of the stuff you do in, in the Tibetan Buddhist practice, you can transform yourself into other things. And I mean, sometimes it's Buddhas and stuff like that. But one of the coolest things I ever did was I just transformed myself into the body of a woman. And this was really interesting because I felt completely different. And I looked down and I was in a female form. And it really made me question. I was still having this awareness that, okay, my body's asleep in bed. I'm Charlie having a lucid dream. But my Charliness is now a woman's body. And in that moment, I had this sense of like, well, where's Char- who's Charlie? Because right now I'm having this experience, but I'm having the experience through a body that is not my own. And then from going to a female body, I then completely got rid of my body. And we're just the point of awareness in the dream. And then it got even weirder because I was like, oh, well, who am I now? And then I realized I'm everything because I'm in my dream. So it's not that Charlie was located in the male body or the female body he transformed into. Charlie, in a lucid dream, you are the dreamer and the dreamt. You know, in the lucid dream, you're the you. Like if I have a lucid dream about you, I'm both me in the lucid dream and I'm Simon in the lucid dream, and I'm the the tree that stands between us, and I'm the leaves on the trees, and I'm the air that blows through the leaves in the trees. You know, if you really want an experience of oneness, have a lucid dream. It's there. Like you really, (laughs) in a lucid dream, you get a, a realization of what these mystics are talking about. Now, of course, the real kicker is to have that experience when you're awake, so to speak, you know, in in waking reality. And I'm, I'm yet to have that. But the lucid dream seems to be a great way to practice that experience in the waking state that that is what anyone who's into non-duality points to is that yeah. you know the idea that charlie who i'm speaking to now is separate from simon is actually an illusion and yeah. that's quite obvious or not necessarily quite obvious but you can recognize that in the lucid dream because it's obviously all within your mind but absolutely non-dualists just scale that up let's come back to that charlie because you spoke about everything being you and also you spoke about the benefits that the people who were doing squat squat and everything like that but the real it seems like the real juice in this is the work you can do around traumas addictions phobias working with your shadow would you agree with that yeah and even if you look at the tibetan buddhist path they also believe in that too so people think that there's a big diversion that the kind of the, the Western view of the potential lucid dreaming is completely different from the Buddhist view. Actually, I mean, they divert at the top because one goes for, for integration of the self, 
you know, individuation, as Carl Jung would would uh, would say, you know, a full balance with the, of the archetypes within the self with a big S. And Buddhism goes for full enlightenment, which is like beyond self, right? But actually, the roots that go there yeah. are parallel for quite a long time. If you look at the four stages of dream yoga, which are really classic Tibetan Buddhist text on, on dream yoga, the first stage is recognition. So basically teach yourself to lucid dream. The second stage, so like the first thing they tell you to do once you're lucid, is called transformation of fear. And it says, uh, uh, this is the direct translation of the Tibetan, jump into fire knowing that you cannot be burnt. Um, oh, sorry, walk through fire knowing that you cannot be burnt. Jump from a high place knowing that you cannot die. Call forth a tiger into your dream and fearlessly and then it gives you a list of things you can do you can embrace the tiger you can transform it into a buddha or you one text says you can ride it like a friendly horse now i read that and i think that's trauma integration they're basically saying do scary stuff in your lucid dreams what were tibetans scared of in the middle ages high places himalayas fire like natural human fear and tigers you know there were snow leopards everywhere so i say well what's your tiger now, in this modern world, I can use these ancient Tibetan teachings, but my job is this bridge, which I think is, is something I am able to do in some small way, is to kind of translate that. So what's your tiger? And your tiger could be childhood trauma. Your tiger could be PTSD from a war zone. Your tiger could be lack of self-worth. But it's about becoming lucid and intentionally facing your fear or intentionally transforming trauma or intentionally going to the places that scare you in order to find awakening within. So it is the same, but it's different. So on this level, dealing with traumas, dealing with low self-worth addictions, et cetera, et cetera. I know you've had quite a lot of experience of, of working with people who've had some, some pretty mad stories. So can you just share a couple starting perhaps with, there's a couple that I really want to talk about. One is to do with you, but I'll come to that in a second. The woman who wanted to meet her seven-year-old self oh, because yeah, of the one. trauma she had been through at that time. This is a really good story because there's loads of like teaching points in it. And actually it kind of teaches you how to lose a dream too. So this woman, it was a retreat in Wales. It was the first night of the retreat. So we hadn't actually really learned any lucid dreaming techniques. All we'd learned was, well, I say this apart from the main one that I teach first, which is called dream planning, which is deciding what you want to do in your first or next lucid dream. And we get out a piece of paper and we go through this three-step process of like writing out what you want to happen in the lucid dream, drawing a picture of it to kind of pictorialize. So you're one step closer to it, uh, like a vision board almost. And then a sankalpa, which is like your statement of intent that you'll call out in the lucid dream. And um, so we're doing this process and I'm kind of walking around the workshop and I look over her shoulder and I see this, she's written this dream plan that she wants to meet her seven-year-old self. And I ask her like, what, what's the deal with meeting a seven-year-old self? And she says, well, when I was seven, there was some abuse that happened. So a trigger warning on this, because uh, I'm going to mention some of this, not in detail, but uh, yeah, over the next few years, uh, next few minutes, I'll be discussing this if anyone wants to skip forward. She said, when I was seven, there was some abuse that happened. And uh, I still hold this idea that it was somehow my fault. I know rationally it wasn't my fault at all, but I still hold this thing. So I feel that if in the lucid dream, I could meet the personification of my seven-year-old self and embrace her, show her love, all the things that I was kind of giving people ideas of what they could do, uh, I might be able to transform and integrate that trauma. Um, and I was like, wow, first night, she's going deep. So I said to her, oh, okay, cool. How long have you been lucid dreaming? And she went, oh, never, never had a lucid dream before. And I was like, wow, okay. You, and you're going straight to this. And she went, yep. Yeah. And I had taught earlier that night 
that uh, Carl Jung talked about an inherent psychic regulation, uh, no, an inherent mechanism within the psychic apparatus that strives for balance between the dark and the light, I believe is the exact quote. He was basically saying the shadow will only give you what you're ready for. And I had seen several instances in lucid dreaming where if people tried to do something in the lucid dream that was in any way dangerous or would have a negative impact on their mental health, they were either woken up uh, or the dream presented them. In one case, this guy was presented with a flashing neon sign in his lucid dream saying access denied, access denied, access denied. So I kind of had faith that a bit like sticking your hand into fire, it immediately gets withdrawn. If you go into the lucid dream and you try and do something dangerous, the psyche just chucks you out. Dreaming is about integration of trauma. So if you go into the dream and try and do something wittingly or unwittingly that would lead to more trauma, the psyche just chucks you out. You know, there's there's an intelligence in the, in the dream state. So I knew that would happen if it was too much. Uh, something like that kind of did happen, actually. So that night she became lucid. First night, never had a lucid dream before. But because her dream plan was so powerful, because it was like, wow, if I can pull this off, my life can change. She did get lucid. And that, I would say, is the number one lucid dreaming technique I can offer anyone, is have a good dream plan. If your dream plan makes you salivate, if your dream plan makes you want to go to sleep early, so you can, you know, because imagine if you could do it, that's how you'll get lucid. So she got lucid uh, that night, and she called out, seven-year-old self, come to me, and nothing happened. Called out a second time, nothing happened. It was as if the dream was like, nah, meeting that traumatized little girl will have contraindications to your psychological health. We're not going to let it happen. So she called out a third time. Maybe it was the rule of three. Who knows? Or maybe her psyche was like, bloody hell, she's insistent. She really wants this to happen. So rather than this little girl appearing, which sometimes does happen when other people have done a similar dream plan, a door appeared. And on the door was the word caution. I mean, how cool is that? Her psyche presented her with a door that said, caution, be careful going back to these places, right? And because in the lucid dream, you have full access to future, past and present memory. In the lucid dream, you can literally think, oh, cool, I can't wait to like tell people about this tomorrow. Or oh, what was it I want to do in my lucid dream? You know, you are fully conscious in there. She thought to herself, oh, what would Charlie say to do? And then she thought, well, maybe if the door's locked, that's symbolic uh, that I shouldn't go there. But if the door's open, I'll see. So she pushes the door and it's kind of like a jar. And as she pushes the door, it opens and suddenly... Uh, this three-story building like manifests as she pushes through the door. And on each story of each floor of the building, there's a different symbolic representation of the abuse that happened to her. On the ground floor was a room full of vomit, which I later found was due to some things where she was forced to eat till she was sick. You know, really, really heavy, horrible, horrible stuff. Uh, horrible stuff for her, I mean, you know, really, really uh, uh, terrible things that, that happened to her. So she walked into this room full of vomit and I always teach this thing like ever since I did my, my TED talk like 10 years ago, whenever it was uh, about embracing, hugging. If you're in a lucid dream and you see anything scary, anything monstrous, anything threatening, it is simply a traumatized part of your psyche. I mean, everything's you in the lucid dream, right? We don't believe it's like anything else. It, it's you. So anything monstrous or scary is a traumatized or, or terrified part of yourself. So I always say to hug them. So she walks into this room full of vomit. And again, it's sweet. Apparently she thought to herself, oh, how do I hug? How do I hug this? So she thought, oh, well, I'll just hug it kind of with my mind. So she walked into the room full of vomit and she just called out, it, it, it wasn't your fault. I set you free. It wasn't your fault. I set you free. These kind of affirmations of release. And then she has a big emotional release in the lucid dream. Bam. And she wakes up. 
And the next day, I mean, the privilege of being able to hear her describe this dream in the dream circle the next day at the retreat. I was like, wow, this is, you know, what a breakthrough. And she did seem different. It was a big shift in her psychologically. Year or so later, I was writing my third book, Dreaming Through Darkness, which is uh, mainly focused on the Jungian concept, the shadow integration, uh, but with lucid dreaming in Tibetan Buddhism as well. And I wanted to use her dream as a case study. So I had to basically ring her up and ask her, you know, is it okay if I use this dream? It can all be anonymous, blah, blah, blah. Um, and she said, yes. But she said, I need to make uh, something clear to you. My trauma was not integrated through that lucid dream. And I was like, oh, that's a bit, you know, a bit disappointing because I want to put it in the book. She went, no, no, no. What happened was after that lucid dream, all of the barriers that prevented me integrating my trauma just disappeared. She said she'd always been averse to talk therapy. She'd always been averse to talking about the family members involved. She'd always been averse to kind of going back to that. She said after the dream, just all those barriers had gone and it seemed like a really good idea to get a therapy. It seemed like a really good idea to talk to family members involved. And uh, the last time I spoke to her, she was about to have Christmas with her family for the first time in many years. Um, ah, wait, sorry, that was not the last time I spoke to her. I then spoke to her a couple of years later and I said, oh, how's your lucid dreaming going? And she went, oh, uh, don't do it anymore. And I was like, oh, right. When did you stop? And she went, oh, I only ever had one, the one in your book. And I was like, whoa, you had, that was your first and only lucid dream. And she was very uh, straightforward. She said, yeah, I came to your workshop because I wanted to heal my childhood trauma, had the lucid dream, did it. Why do it again? Of course, I was like, oh, because there's loads of other stuff you can work through. It's a spiritual practice. But brilliant, man. And I think that really shows one lucid dream can change your life. I mean, with practice, you can be having lucid dreams on a weekly basis, like a few a week. But really, all you need is one lucid dream to profoundly alter the course of your life. That's a hugely impactful story. And it shows the sort of bang for buck you can get on your retreats as well, Charlie. That's uh, remarkable. Yeah, I mean, uh, a couple of things. It's worth it. Waking up at four o'clock in the morning, doing these meditations, yeah. dropping back to sleep. There's a lot of effort, but it is worth it. No, they sound awesome. And I'll ask you about them in a bit. But uh, a couple of things. You mentioned the TED Talk. Is that the one, because I've definitely heard you say this, where there was some like, zombie or ghoulish character that was a bit scary monster. you went up and hugged yeah went up and hugged him and and you woke up in tears and if so can you just briefly tell that one as well because that that really hit me yeah so actually i'm realizing that 2011 so like what's that like 12 years ago or something like that um yeah so this was the first it was it was the first time i did proper shadow integration in the lucid dream so i've got two teachers right i got a tibetan buddhist teacher Lama Yeshi Rinpoche, who's an indigenous Tibetan, uh, who's been the abbot of Samaling Monastery in Scotland for, for many decades. Uh, and he's, he's a specialist of, of dream and death, right? So he's my main kind of Buddhist teacher. Then also I've got another teacher who died recently, actually, less than a, uh, about a month ago, uh, called Rob Nairn. Brilliant man. He was a professor of criminology at Cape Town University and then became a Buddhist teacher. So he has this deep awareness of kind of Western psychology and Jungian psychology in particular and Tibetan Buddhist practice. And I used to, when I first started teaching lucid dreaming, I would often get like these nightmares. Um, and I think it's probably because I was putting too much pressure on my mind. I was like, oh God, I've been asked to teach. I've got to be like really holier than thou in the lucid dream. And all this shadow material, kind of sexual and violent stuff kept on coming up into my dreams. And I remember boasting to him. I was like early twenties. Uh, and I said, oh yeah, don't worry. Cause whenever that happens, I turn myself into Wolverine. And I mean, he didn't know who Wolverine was. Oh, you know, Wolverine, like, boom. 
And I said, yeah, I make these spikes come out of my hands. And then I just attack them. And he gave me this look like, I think only ever my Buddhist teacher or my mum would ever give me this look of like, oh God, you know, I love you, but you're an idiot. And he said, okay, these are not demons. You're not being attacked by your dream. This isn't dark shamans and dream. That's all rubbish. It's your own shadow. And it's coming up because you're trying to be holier than thou, because you're pushing it away. You've got to integrate the shadow. You want to embrace the shadow. So I thought, yeah, embrace the shadow. So I thought he meant literally like hug it, right? So uh, the next few times these nightmares came, actually the next few times I still did what I did. I just couldn't, I couldn't hack it. But eventually, maybe the third or fourth time, I was in this nightmare, this three-headed demon thing appeared and I was about to fight. And then I remembered, I was like, oh no, he said, embrace it, embrace it. Again, I thought he meant literally, right? So I hug this thing. And I like hug this thing and it's like biting me and stuff. I thought it would just turn into light. It didn't. It was like struggling to get free. But I was like, oh, you know, trust the teacher. This is okay. It's just my shadow, just my shadow. And then it starts to shrink. And it was so cool. I remember I could feel it shrinking in my arms. And then I released the embrace and the demon thing had turned into me. Like a direct carbon copy, like a, like a clone. Like I was hugging myself, but I was kind of silvery. I was kind of shrouded in the silver light, I remember. And I hugged myself. And then I woke up in this like big kind of blissful release. Uh, and then a couple of months later, I, I told him about this. And uh, I said, you know, was that shadow integration? I remember he said, he said, yes, but you're crazy, man. I didn't mean literally hug the thing. And I was like, what do you mean? You said embrace the shadow. He said, embrace the shadow is a psychological term. It's a metaphor, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I kind of, so often my stupidity, actually, my lack of enlightenment, and my dear, my, my severe dyslexia has actually proved to be like a superpower. Because in that moment, I learned to hug things in the lucid dream. And now I've spent the last 15 years teaching people to literally hug things in their lucid dream. Because if everything's symbolic, what could be a better symbol of integration of trauma than the hug? So, I mean, I say don't do it metaphorically. Literally hug anything that's scary or traumatic in your dream because to show it love, will heal it because love is the most powerful healing and love is the most powerful energy in the world, let alone the most powerful healing energy, I think. Completely agree. So did you feel noticeably different after that one experience? Yeah, I don't always. Like sometimes I can have really big lucid dream experience and the next day just feel like completely normal. So I can't say like every time you have a big lucid dream breakthrough, you feel it. But that one in particular, and that's why I used it to uh, as the example in the TED Talk, that one I did. Because I remember being on the London Underground later that day, but like hours later, like maybe 11 o'clock in the morning and feeling, I can't quite tune into how it was different, but I know I felt different. I felt different. I felt lighter. I, I know what you mean. Something yeah. had happened. You know, you know something's happened. You can't work out what's happened, but something's happened. I still don't know what that three-headed demon represented. You know, it could have been like my relationship with my dad. It could have been like the bullies from school. It could have been sexual trauma. I don't know. And this cool thing with lucid dreaming, you don't need to know. Well, yeah, one of the big breakthroughs in trauma research in the last decade or so has been trauma can be integrated somatically and intrapsychically without awareness of what the original trauma was. That's freaking huge and goes in complete yeah. uh, contrast to talk therapy, which is basically tell me about it, tell yeah. me about it, tell me about it. And in some cases, talk yeah, yeah, therapy, yeah. brilliant. I've been in talk therapy for four years, right? Uh, for, for certain things with like, you know, my mom's death and the end of my marriage and stuff like that. But for trauma, talk therapy is not that good. You know, it always comes out lowest when yeah. you look at it in comparison with other forms of therapy. But lucid dreaming, you can integrate the trauma without needing to know what the trauma is. 
And how will you know it's been integrated? Because your yeah. trauma triggers will not go off in the waking state. This is the cool thing about lucid dreaming. You don't need to believe it. Anyone who's listening or watching this and their bullshit alert, bullshit radar is going off, just try it. You know, you don't need to believe in anything. You don't need to like be part of some cult. You don't need to believe in some guru. You just learn these practices. You do the practices. They either work or they don't work. How do you know if they work? Because the next day your trauma triggers are not engaged or they're much diminished. Uh, and we found this in the study, we, the PTSD study we did. And we're going to come to that in a sec. Very quickly, we've mentioned the word shadow a few times. If you had to summarize it just very briefly, how would you? So Carl Jung defined the shadow as any element of the unconscious mind that we rejected, denied, or disowned. He called it the dark side of the human psyche, but crucially, not dark meaning evil or malign, dark meaning yet to be illuminated. So the shadow is everything within us that we're currently unwilling to love. So when you think of like the dark shadow, you might think of elements of our, uh, our trauma, our prejudice, our racism, our anger, um, our irritability, things that we hide from ourselves and others. But actually, another great quote from Jung that hardly anyone seems to know or quote, he said, the shadow is 90% pure gold. And this is the idea of the golden shadow, that which we reject, deny, disown within ourselves, but which is overtly beneficial, sometimes called the positive shadow. So things like your hidden talents. Uh, let's say you're an amazing singer, but because of the gender norms in the particular part of society you're part of, uh, you feel as a uh, uh, someone who's very masculine that they can't, they can't sing because they'll be seen as effeminate. And that's actually an example I take from someone I work with in, in Wales. Um, the golden shadow might be your hidden talents. Uh, for anyone who's listening, anyone who hides their esoteric side from their friends or family for fear of being labeled too woo-woo, that's your golden shadow. You know, your spiritual side, what could be more positive, right? But we hide it, reject it, deny it. So the shadow is not just kind of the bad side of our psyche. It's just anything that we reject, deny, disown. And then as well, I've heard you talk about how everything tends to get personified in a lucid dream. So let's say you have feelings of low self-worth or shame or guilt, because they're obviously somewhat abstract in nature. But how would you go about instructing someone who had difficulties in those areas to tackle them in a lucid dream? Yeah, this is one of the coolest aspects of lucid dreaming. And I believe it is unique to lucid dreaming. I mean, when you do kind of like really powerful shamanic journeying or visualization or psychedelics, actually, psychedelics is probably the closest. Um, but unique to lucid dreaming is that psychological concepts become personified. So in a lucid dream, you can literally meet a personification of your sexual shame or of your fear or of your anger. How? By becoming lucid in the dream and calling out, I want to meet my anger or I want to meet my sexual shame. When you do that, nine times out of 10, a personification of that psychological concept will enter the dream. And it might be like a ball of red smoke. It might be the bully from school. It might be a monster. It might be no visual, but just like a feeling of doom. But you call it out in the lucid dream, nine times out of 10, it will manifest. Because of course, in the dream state, thought manifests reality. You're in a thought responsive environment. Everything is mind. You know, what is a lucid dream? It's a three-dimensional virtual reality hallucination of your own psychology. So if when you're in that virtual reality simulation, you ask for an element of your psychology to appear, it will. And it will appear in a way that is 
are best suited to communicate with you, which is often in kind of, you know, personified form. So if you have shame, guilt, any of those things, you can call them forth and meet them face to face, as it were, and work with them that way. As you say, go and give them a hug. And that's probably a good starting point. I was going to say, just to give an example of, of, of how creative this can be. So a woman I've been working with recently, uh, she became lucid and she wanted to look at her. Um, it was kind of sexual shame, lack of sexual boundaries. So she calls out for this lack of sexual boundaries. And who appears in the lucid dream? But the actress from the TV show Fleabag. Now, anyone who's seen Fleabag is it's about a woman with kind of very porous sexual boundaries. So how creative that when she asked to meet her sexual shame, that was what the mind presented her with. You know, a perfect way because she got it. She's like, oh, of course, it's Fleabag. But then she was able to dialogue with this kind of representation of the Fleabag, uh, you know, main character in the lucid dream and was able to not only dialogue, but then embrace, hug and integrate. So it's so creative and so fun. Wow. You know, hopefully when people are listening, they're like, yeah, I want to go to sleep. Like lucid dreaming is so much fun. If you're into inner child work, not only can lucid dreaming be a great way to heal the inner child, but it is an inner child practice. You know, you're getting into pajamas, you're drawing your pictures of what you want to do in your lucid dream. It's so much fun. Wicked. And we'll come to that as well. But you did mention PTSD. Yeah. And I want to talk about the work that you do with veterans. I know you got a Churchill Fellowship Research Grant. I know this has been hugely impactful for you and obviously everyone as well. And then there's the PTSD study that was published a little earlier this year. So if you can just talk a bit about this as well, please. Yeah, sure. So this is uh, about seven or eight years ago, I started working with British military veterans Maybe it was 10 years ago, uh, a veteran called Keith McKenzie, who was a a paratrooper veteran, came on one of my retreats on Holy Isle, and he had this big breakthrough, uh, and his his PTSD nightmare stopped, basically. And he emailed me afterwards saying, uh, I integrated more of my trauma in that four-day workshop than I did in four years of therapy. And it was such a good, like, you know, uh, line. I said, oh, can I put that on my website? So this quote was on my website for many years. Um, but then we kind of lost contact. And a few years later, he got back in con- two years later. And he said, oh, I've trained to be a mindfulness teacher. And I've trained to be a Buddhist chaplain in the armed forces. And I'm now running these retreats for veterans. Will you come and teach the same stuff I learned to my guys? Uh, and I was like, mate, you're the only veteran I know or have ever really met or spent any time with. I have no idea. I'm completely out of my depth. Um, but I'll give it a shot. And we went there and I was completely out of my depth the first time. I mean, the veterans community, wow. It's like the the level of banter was the first thing that hit me. You go in and they're just, people were effing and blinding as soon as I got in there. And I was like, whoa, I thought like maybe they knew me from somewhere because I was like so confidently insulting me as soon as I walk in, I was, this is just how the bonding goes. So after kind of stepping back, I realized, okay, this is how we communicate. So I start effing and blinding back. And then, you know, you, you have to just keep this level of banter constantly going, which is, of course, a form of invisible therapy. It's that to sit in silence and to truly be oneself when you're with that level of trauma is almost impossible. So the presentation of how you are, it might be actually very lively, very kind of uh, uh, very funny, always cracking jokes, but often it's a little bit of a mask to to hide what's underneath. Um, So we did this retreat. It went well. Some of them had big breakthroughs. Um, We did more retreats. Uh, I mean, I owe everything to this guy, Keith McKenzie. There's no way into the veteran scene other than for veteran lets you in. 
And he not only let me in, he was like a cheerleader for me. Um, and he was, he's, he died now, actually. My latest book is dedicated to him. Um, and based on the work with veterans, I then got a slot giving a talk at the Ministry of Defense. So Ministry of Defense did this mindfulness conference, like in the main MOD building in London. And I went there and presented on lucid dreaming and yoga nidra and meditation, all this kind of stuff to like the front rows were like five-star generals and stuff. You're like, this is nuts. And of course, because the military system is so hierarchical, it's the, you know, definition of, of, of hierarchy. Once I did that talk and it didn't go badly, then a lot of doors opened. And then I started doing retreats and workshops, not only for veterans, but for serving military, because they had this idea, quite forward thinking, actually preventative medicine. They were like, we want to teach these men and women the techniques to integrate trauma before they are traumatized, not after they are traumatized, which is actually pretty forward thinking, I thought. Um, so then, yeah, that was, you know, spent the last few years doing that maybe makes up kind of 25% of the work that I do. They're always free. I would never charge a veteran. So we always make sure I get funding from some other source to be able to offer them for free. And the latest book, Wake Up to Sleep, is it's got a little bit about lucid dreaming, but it's mainly a book of for people with stress or trauma affected sleep. So it's breath work, it's qigong, it's yoga nidra, it's uh, mindfulness-based movement practices, and it's lucid dreaming, a kind of a more holistic approach. And this kind of really came to a head a couple of years ago when I got approached by a scientific organization in San Francisco called IONS, the Institute of Noetic Sciences. They had heard about my work and they wanted to do a study looking at lucid dreaming as a treatment for PTSD. I remember when they said it, I thought, oh, you mean lucid dreaming is treatment for nightmares that are caused by PTSD? And they went, no, people have done those studies. We want to see not only does lucid dreaming uh, cure nightmares and that's been well documented dozens of studies because of course if you can train someone to become lucid in their nightmare then they're not really back in Iraq they're simply dreaming they're back in Iraq I'm okay I'm safe I'm not in danger it can be a really powerful form of integration but no one had seen whether it could actually lucid dreaming could affect waking state PTSD uh, symptoms so we got the funding to do this study 55 people uh, two thirds of them female, mainly from the US and the UK, uh, about a quarter of them were veterans and three quarters were not veterans. Uh, what I found out after a few years of working with veterans is that trauma is trauma. And this naive belief I had that military trauma would be in some way worse than civilian trauma was just completely wrong. Whether you have been in a literal war zone or whether you've been in a familial war zone, trauma is trauma. So I started to open up these retreats. I'd have like funding for like 20 veterans. So I'd make sure I had the 20 veterans. Then I'd open up another 20 places to civilians. And it was actually a really good way to get kind of um, more integration between people on civvy streets and, and those coming out of the forces. So when we did the study, it was open to veterans and non-veterans. Um, but to get on the study, you had to have chronic PTSD. So we gave, there's something called the DSM-5 self-report PTSD scale basically a list of loads and loads of questions to find out how traumatized you are. Sounds quite arbitrary, but it's pretty effective and it's, it's, it's uh, well known. And people had to have a high level of PTSD to get onto the study. They had to have chronic PTSD, in many cases, treatment resistance. So they tried stuff and it hadn't worked. So I had never worked with a group with 100% PTSD before. And the night, literally the night before the study started, the funder, uh, this brilliant angel investor called Constantine uh, Kuss, he messaged me on WhatsApp and said, how many lucid dreams do you think we're going to get in this one week study? 
And I replied, mate, maybe none. I've never worked with a group where everyone is traumatized. I work with groups where a lot of people are, but not the whole group. We might just spend the, the week getting people to sleep, let alone dreaming and, and lucid dreaming. Uh, but I was wrong. What I found out is when you get people in a group who have all got trauma, there's a shared experience that bonds people very quickly together and that also amplifies the power of the practice. We are not all in the same boat. You know, I wish we were, but we are not. Based on race and gender and societal standing and money and all these things, we're all in completely different boats. But those who know trauma may not be in the same boat, but they're in the same storm. They know that storm well. They know that storm of nightmares, of panic attacks, of anxiety, of flashbacks, of not being able to function because they're so traumatized. And I know that too from my own PTSD in my past. So there was something that came together in that group. Some magic was formed and we had a lot of lucid dreams in that week. So basically it was a week-long workshop. I taught people to lucid dream, but we all had the same dream plan. So rather than a dream plan to, you know, practice your squats to get better at sport or to meet your higher self or to, you know, integrate, uh, uh, you know, your shadow or something, everyone had the same dream plan, which was to face and embrace the central trauma of their life, to face and embrace the central trauma of their life or a core trauma in their life. And at the beginning of the week, everyone had their PTSD score taken and it was pretty high. I mean, I can show you the graph where this is way above the, the threshold of PTSD on average. They had the week learning to lucid dream. Many of them had lucid dreams. And of those who had lucid dream, many of them counted as a healing lucid dream, which was a lucid dream where you intentionally faced and embraced or faced and transformed your trauma. And I can give you some examples of, of what they were in a minute. Then at the end of the week, we took their PTSD scores again. What we found was at the end of the week, the average PTSD score had dropped so low, it was beneath the PTSD threshold. Now, the scientists, and this is such a cool part of the story, they thought there was a problem with data collection. They were like, nah, this, this can't be right. So they double checked and they were like, okay, we're still getting the same score here. Uh, so let's triple check. Then they thought, okay, well, look, uh, on our triple check, it seems to be showing us that 85% of people of those 55 are now free of PTSD. They're way beneath the threshold. So that can't be right. So we need to do a one-month follow-up study because maybe it's some weird flash in the pan, some magic we created in the group. Uh, no, we did a one-month a one follow-up study. It actually dropped one point below. So it lasts at least a month. And by the end of the one week, 85% of people were free of PTSD based on the DSM-5 self-report model. Um, I've been doing this stuff for wow. 15 years. I read every study, well, not everyone, many, many, many studies on lucid dreaming, trauma integration. I've never seen results like this. In fact, the results were so audacious, we struggled to get them published. Um, people weren't questioning the results. They were just saying, yeah, great results, but it's not for us. And we were like, why? Why isn't it for you? Then we got funding to do a 100-person randomized control. Now, randomized control study is, of course, the gold standard. Once we had completed the randomized control and word got out that we had replicated results, then suddenly those doors opened. I mean, it sounds quite conspiratorial. I'm sure it's not. It's just people wanting to cover their backs. But eventually we did get it published in the Journal of Traumatology in June, which is like the top, top journal. And I can say, I think it's the first podcast I'm saying it on, we have just finished crunching the data on the 100-person randomized control and we have replicated results. 
Uh, we don't know whether we've got exactly 85% again, but we've replicated results. So we've had big decreases in PTSD under control conditions. Um, so any naysayers that there may have been around the pilot study, we seem to have done it again, which is just so cool. And the, the reason I speak about this, I hope yeah. I, you know, I'm saying this not to, not to impress you, uh, because I don't do anything. You know, it's everybody else. I'm the only one not lucid dreaming here. It's it's just the people in the in the study. But it's to impress upon you just how amazing the results are. It's like it's nothing I've seen in the last 15 years. Uh, so what an honor to be part of it. And all of those people who who were part of the study, ah, oh, thank you to them all. And just one extra thing, because you might be thinking randomized control. So that means 50% of these traumatized people didn't get the lucid dreaming intervention. Because I'm not a scientist, I don't know what the rules are. So I thought it was really unfair. I was like, wait, we get 100 people heavily traumatized who are looking for relief from their PTSD, and we're going to send 50% of them away and say, just be traumatized for a week? No, you need to find money in the funding for us to do a second workshop for the control group once the study is finished. So we made sure that all the people in the control group still got the full lucid dreaming protocol. We just weren't collecting their data. So it was fair for everyone, I think. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I imagine by this point, people at least want to know a bit of the how of lucid dreaming. So perhaps we could touch on that. I've got your one of your first lucid dreaming books that I've been keeping by my bed. So I've been keeping a sleep diary just to kick Great. us off. And I know that's one of the, the key things, but if you can just um, talk us through it. And I just want to add a quick thing in terms of my own experience, which is that, as you know, I've got a five month old baby. So we're sort of getting woken up a lot anyway. Oh yeah, I, bet. I am noticing a, a slight, because I'm trying to write down my dreams and I'm getting woken up a lot in the night. I've had to stop it recently just because I sort of almost get excited about what might happen. And I've noticing it's actually slightly keeping me awake at a time when sleep is hard to come by. So I just thought I'd throw that in there. Just my professional opinion and please okay. take advice. Stop any lucid dreaming or sleep practice during this time. Like your first year with a baby, okay. your job is to be the brilliant father that you are. You don't need to add extra pressure of lucid dreaming into the mix. I mean, if it happens, it happens. But yeah, keeping a dream diary, all this stuff like, Give yourself time off at this point, I'd say, because your sleep's more important. Charlie, that is brilliant advice. So thank you very much. I, <laughs> I will I will kickstart it again in about nine months' time, exactly. or maybe longer than that. Who knows? Yeah. Okay, for the non-people with newborns amongst us, what are the key things people need to be doing to kickstart a lucid dreaming practice, as it were? Yeah. So obviously, you know, I've written books about this. There are dozens of practices, whole protocols to be engaged, but we can look at four core techniques that people can start doing today. First one, we talked about dream planning. They're called the four Ds, right? All the D. First one, dream planning. So as I've discussed this before, decide what you want to do in your first or next lucid dream and go big. 
you know, if you're going to actually bother doing the lucid dreaming techniques, some of which mean like waking up at four o'clock in the morning, falling asleep, doing this certain visualization, all this kind of stuff, you need a good reason to do it. So don't just like, I want to have a lucid dream to kind of look around. That's not going to be enough. Like think of a, imagine I'd said to you, you've got an hour with no, well, I don't know, several hours with the world's top, top, top hypnotherapist. What would you want to work on? Because essentially anything you can work on through hypnotherapy, you can work on through lucid dreaming. So look at that. If I had access to the world's top hypnotherapist, what trauma would I want to work with? Or what fear would I want to integrate? Or what uh, element of my confidence would I want to optimize? Or what part of my life would I want to transform? You know, have a, have a goal of what you want to do and make a dream plan. You know, write it out. In my next lucid dream, I call out to meet my inner child. I embrace them with love. And through this embrace, I heal any and all of my childhood lack of self-confidence, you know, for example. Then draw a picture of it, stage two. So you draw a little picture, a little stick man picture of it happening. And then stage three, your sankalpa, that would be what you actually call out in the lucid dream. It's a Sanskrit word that means like will or intent. That might be literally like inner child come to me or something like that, right? So dream planning, first one. Second one is uh, dream recall. So you mentioned this, uh, remembering your dreams, because unless you remember them, you're unlikely to get lucid. Lucid dreaming is predicated on knowing the dream state so well that you know it while you're in it. So unless you regularly remember your dreams, you're not going to remember to have lucid dreams, right? So first thing, remember your dreams. Barrier one to remove for this, everybody dreams. Many people listening will be thinking, I don't dream. You do dream. There is no way to stop the human brain from dreaming other than a heavy head injury or a stroke. And even then, within a few weeks, the brain will rewire itself and start dreaming because dreaming is so important to our survival because we dream to remember and we dream to forget. We dream to consolidate memory and we dream to integrate trauma. I don't like the word forget, but, you know, to integrate trauma. So dreaming is you can't stop yourself from dreaming. So you're definitely dreaming. Um, How to do this? Fall asleep reciting an affirmation. As you fall asleep, you go through this hypnotic state called the hypnagogic state. So as you fall asleep tonight, be saying over and over again, tonight, I remember my dreams. I have excellent dream recall. Tonight, I remember my dreams. I have excellent dream recall. That's D number two. D number three, you've mentioned already keeping a dream diary, keeping a sleep journal. So when you wake up in the morning or even in the middle of the night, if you can be bothered, jot down your experience. Now, your experience could be, oh, I was dreaming about this and that and that and that. Or the experience could be, oh, I can't remember my dreams. And it took me a while to fall asleep and I feel a bit anxious. That's a fine entry too. You know, if you can't remember the dreams, at least write something. Um, Why do we write it down? That third D, dream diaries. Because the act of writing down your dreams allows you to spot patterns. And this is where the lucid dreaming comes in. Let's say you spent a week writing down your dreams. Then at the end of the week, you look through your dream diary and you see, oh, I always dream of being in the house I grew up in as a kid. Or like, oh, twice I dreamt of zombies. Or every month I dream of my dead grandma. You'll start to see these patterns emerging. And these things like dead grandma, being in the house you grew up in, dead relative, this kind of stuff. um, These are all dream signs. A dream sign is basically any part of the dream that signals to you that it is a dream. So, you know, dead relatives, weird things happening, uh, friends you haven't seen for ages being in your dreams, those all would indicate that you're dreaming, right? So the act of writing down the dreams, you start to spot patterns. And then that the final D, dream signs. Once you've spotted your dream signs, so let's say it's that you were dreaming your dead grandma, then you can fall asleep. And before sleep, you say, well, look, if between now and breakfast, I see my dead grandma, I must be dreaming. No two ways about it. 100% I'm dreaming. 
So then you can fall asleep with an affirmation. Tonight, I dream of grandma. When I dream of grandma, I know I'm dreaming. Tonight, I dream of grandma. When I dream of grandma, I know I'm dreaming. And then that's your first kind of lucid dreaming affirmation there. And that's cool because eventually you will dream of your grandma. But because you've set up what's called a lucidity trigger, you've set up this idea that grandma equals dreaming. That trigger will will you know be pulled in the lucid dream and suddenly, bam, oh, I'm dreaming, I'm dreaming. And then you become lucid. And then the aim there is to stay calm. So many times people's first lucid dreams last about five seconds because you see your dead grandma or whatever your dream sign is. Oh, it's so cool. Bam. And you wake up. So stay calm. Stay cool. What about the hand trick, Charlie? Oh, that gets a little bit more complicated. But yeah, we can look at that now, as you mentioned it. So there are also things you can do in the waking state to train yourself to lucid dream. Uh, And this is called the weird technique or reality checking. So every time in your waking state experience that you experience something strange or dreamlike, like a synchronicity or someone says something at the same time as you, or like you're walking down the street and there's a stag party where they're all dressed as superheroes, anything where you think that's a bit dreamlike, you ask yourself in the waking state, could I be dreaming? Now, of course, you know you're not dreaming. You're not psychotic. You're just playing a game. You're creating a habit of going, oh, wow, look, people dress as Superman. That's a bit dreamlike. Could I be dreaming? So you ask yourself, could I be dreaming? And then you do an impossible action. So see if you can put your finger through your hand or see if you can pull your finger and extend or see if you can breathe through your nose while you're pinching your, your nostrils. Try an impossible action. It sounds crazy, right? But we dream about what we do in the daytime. Anyone who's worked in a factory will know this. You spend the whole day packing boxes. What do you dream about at night? Packing boxes. So if you can spend the whole day, every time something dreamlike or strange occurs, you don't ignore it, but you go, oh, could I be dreaming and do this impossible action? Eventually, you dream about that. But in the dream, the impossible action works. And your finger goes through your hand or your finger pulls or you can breathe through your nose. And then with that realization, whoa, I must be dreaming. So these are things you can do in the day to lead to lucid dreams at night. So it makes it so fun, you know, because you're doing stuff in the day that's like making you more switched on. You're living more lucidly. You know, suddenly you see a stag do coming towards you. And rather than being annoyed, oh, it's a bunch of drunk people. You'd be, oh, that's a really cool, you know, chance to do a reality check. This might give me a lucid dream tonight. And just quickly, Charlie. In terms of natural ability when it comes to lucid dreaming, because I've heard you say that actually you weren't someone who was necessarily given this huge gift as some people are. Yeah. Like my wife, for example, as I said to you before we start recording, oh yeah, is has been doing lucid dreaming for eons. Like it's just something she does very naturally. But she's one of those one in a hundred natural lucid she, dreamer. Oh, honestly, yeah. She, she, her her spiritual abilities with things like that and meditation and astral projection does my head in. I get none of it. She gets all of it. But for those of us who are not, let's say, gifted in that area, that's not a barrier to entry. What no. The way you teach is it's a way for anyone to be able to do it, whether you're natural or not. Yeah. So I'm not a natural lucid dreamer. That's why I'm a good teacher, I think. You know, if I was some sort of reincarnated Tibetan Buddhist teacher who just came out of the womb with this ability to be lucid, how would I know what techniques work? Um, and it's interesting because at the moment I'm in a real period of, of, um, of self-study and self-practice um, because I realized that for the last few years I've been so busy with teaching other people to lucid dream that my own lucid dream frequency had dropped right down. I was having a few lucid dreams a month rather than a few lucid dreams a week. So two months ago, I decided to flip that around and I went back into formal lucid dreaming practice and now I'm having a few a week. And it is so cool to know that it is always there. I hadn't lost it. 
the training is always there. It's like, if you don't go to the gym, how can you expect your muscles to grow? So I was like, oh, why are my muscles growing? It's like, because you haven't been to the Lucid Dreaming gym for so long. Two months ago, I was like, right, I'm going to stop doing workshops and just do my own training. And now I'm back to a few a week. So that's really inspirational, not only for me, but for those listening. You can switch it on. This is a learnable skill. There is a protocol. And if you follow it and the protocols in the books and in my courses, you will have lucid dreams. However, the most important awesome. part of that protocol awesome. is enthusiasm. That's how you're going to get lucid. Enthusiasm and intention. Love it. Okay. Final bit, Charlie, before you tell me and tell everyone listening where they can find all your stuff, the spiritual point of view. Okay. Mm. So the Tibetan Buddhist approach, I think you may have mentioned it before, but I've certainly heard you talk about it in terms of a preparation fundamentally for dying. So can you talk about that? But can you also talk about, I've heard you talk about the three type of lucid dreams specifically. So samsara, et cetera, et cetera. And just a oh, quick yeah. explanation of what they are. Sure. So the preparation for death and dying thing comes down fundamentally to this idea of the bardo. So bardo is a Tibetan word that means place in between. And in fact, our whole life is a series of bardos, right? Like this life is said to be the bardo between birth and death. You know, so bardo is a place in between constant shifting sands, never any solidity, right? But most of the time when you use the term bardo, people are referring to the after death bardo. So the belief in Tibetan Buddhism is obviously in reincarnation, but it's not as simple that as soon as you die, you're just instantly reincarnated. The Tibetan Buddhist tradition believes that when you die, your mind stream separates from the gross corporeal form at the point of death. Like the classic, you know, in movies where they show people floating out their body and then looking back and seeing your body. That's actually very kind of in line with the Tibetan Buddhist view, right? So the mind separates from the gross corporeal form and then flips inwardly and experiences the totality of its own projection. Now, that sounds a little bit like dreaming, and it should do. When we close our eyes and sleep at night, the mind stops taking in external data, it flips inwardly and starts experiencing a hallucination based on its experiences, right? Based on memory and fantasy and prediction of the future and all this kind of stuff. Um, when we die, the same thing happens, but on a much grander scale. The mind flips inwardly and it's said we experience a dreamlike hallucinatory experience of the after-death bardo state. So basically, we enter into this kind of hallucinatory experience. This is where the life review happened, your life flashing before your eyes. This is where all these visions, the death visions happen, all this kind of stuff. So it said, most of us, because we don't know how to lucid dream, because we're not in the habit of recognizing our hallucinations, we just think our hallucinations are real. That's what happens every time we dream, right? We think we're awake. In fact, we're dreaming. We die unconsciously. It's kind of not like this new age thing. Everyone dies consciously. They go to the light. Nah, Buddhists are way more realistic. They're like, nope. Most people die with complete lack of consciousness. Most people don't know they're dead. A bit like that movie Sixth Sense. Spoiler alert. Um, it's like that. But if you've trained yourself in conscious sleeping and lucid dreaming, then it said at the point of death, you can die consciously and you can recognize the after death hallucinations like you can recognize a dream. So rather than going, aha, I'm dreaming, I'm lucid, you'd literally go, aha, I'm dead, which I mean, is like kind of a crazy concept, right? But apparently, if you could have that recognition of aha, well, not I am dead, because the eyes gone, but aha, death, death is what I what one is experiencing now. And that is the highest achievement of the yogi. And it said that can lead to full spiritual enlightenment at the point of death. 
So it's like the last chance saloon, right? The, but, you know, you want to try and get fully enlightened in the waking in, in your life. But if you haven't and you die, you've got one more shot, which is lucid dream. Lucid dream is like the last, last chance saloon, right? So I don't know. I have no idea whether this stuff works. If it does, if it does, right? And I get lucid in death and I can kind of come back in my reincarnation, I'll try and find you. I'll be like, Simon, it works. Keep lucid dreaming. I'll be this like little kid or something. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? But what I do know is it really helps with fear of death. I can honestly say if someone came in here now and put a gun to my head, yeah, 80% of me would be like, no, no, don't kill me. Pray for my life. But I can honestly say 20%. I've been lucid dreaming 20 years, right? And right now I could say 20% of me would be going, showtime. Let's see if this stuff works. Let's see if 20 years of lucid dreaming actually pays off at this point. So if I can get another uh, 20 40, 60 years of lucid dreaming under my belt. And by the time I die at 80 or something, maybe there's a big chance that I can die without a lot of fear. Maybe I could die with this sense of confidence of like, yeah, man, I can recognize this state. Who knows? Ask me when I'm 80. But yeah, that's that's the idea. As far as goals go, that is right up there, Charlie. I like that a lot. Um, <laughs> Pretty audacious goal, isn't it? <laughs> in terms of the different types of dreams, just quickly, because there's yeah, samsara, sure. no, another specific. one, another one. Very, and then I just want to question. touch on the non-duality one at the end. Yeah, no, again, no one's ever asked me this in the podcast. You, you are several things that no one's ever asked. And that is a sign of such a good interview, dude. This is, you, you know, you're, you're very good at what you do, obviously, clearly. Um, okay, so the classes of dreams. Um, so in Tibetan Buddhism, you have these like classes of dreams, right? The first class is samsaric. Now this word samsara is unenlightened existence. So until you're enlightened, you're in samsara. So right now, this is samsara, right? The material world, believing in an illusory sense of self, dukkha, suffering, that's all samsara, right? Uh, samsaric dreams are dreams that reflect your experience of samsara. So just your everyday non-lucid dreams about life. They're samsaric dreams. However, with so most of our dreams are samsaric, just like most of our dreams are non-lucid. I and mean, here's a cool fact, right? Even if you get lucid every night of your life, which I can't do, I'm not lucid every night. Even if you get lucid every night of your life, still 95% of your dream experience will be non-lucid based on five dream periods a night, multiple dream, eight hour sleep cycle, five dream periods a night, multiple dreams in each dream cycle. So, you know, even if you're getting lucid every night of your life, don't discount non-lucid dreams because then you're discounting 95% of your experience. What a waste, right? So samsaric dreams um, are dreams of samsara. A subcategory, this is cool, a subcategory of samsaric dreams are past life dreams. This is weird. When Westerners see this, they say, hang on, shouldn't past life dreams be like a special category? Well, no, the Buddhist view, again, they're so, I love the realism of Buddhism. They basically say, unless you were enlightened in your past life, what's the point of dreaming of it? You're just dreaming about more unenlightened samsaric stuff. So, you know, in the West, we had a big deal. Oh, I had a past life dream. I was in another. The Buddhists like, oh, so what? Like, yeah, you've, you've had billions of past lives. This is not your first rodeo. You've done this billions of times. So, yeah, loads of your dreams will be past life. How can you prove it? How will you know it? You know, so, it's, you know, it's not this big kind of thing given to them. So samsaric dreams, subcategory, uh, past life dreams. Then you have uh, clarity dreams. Clarity dreams contain within them as a subcategory lucid dreams. So a lucid dream is a type of clarity dream, but also clarity, you can have a clarity dream that's not fully lucid. So some of the most powerful dream experiences that I've had are clarity dreams, but I wouldn't actually class them as lucid dreams. So a clarity dream is a dream, uh, what Carl Jung would call uh, archetypal dreams or, 
or big dreams, uh, dreams where you're receiving spiritual teachings, dreams, you know, if you've had a dream that you're kind of riding a unicorn over a mountain and then you receive teachings from a Buddha on the top of a golden mountain, okay, that's a clarity dream, you know, not a samsaric dream, a dream of teaching, a dream of insight, a dream of wisdom. Um, and a subcategory, they can be lucid dreams. And then the third category are, uh, oh, clarity dream, uh, sorry, uh, uh, clear light experiences. So a clear light experience is not really a dream, but it does fall within these three-step category of dreams. A, a clear light experience is an experience of non-dual awareness within the sleep state. So scientifically, this would be, and this hasn't been proven yet scientifically, they say it's impossible, it would be lucidity in deep delta wave sleep. So stage four deep delta wave, the brain's almost entirely switched off. It's like in standby mode. You know, the brain waves are very long, very low amplitude. There's no projection going on. Sense of self is completely offline. They say there's like, that's just where human growth hormones being released. Toxins are flushed through the brain. Uh, plaques, Alzheimer plaques actually removed from the brain. You know, deep sleep is very important, but no way you can be conscious in it. The Buddhists say, no, consciousness within deep sleep is the highest form, way higher than lucid dreaming, actually. It's the pinnacle of dream yoga would be non-dream yoga, would be the sleep yoga where you are experiencing the non-dual awareness behind the dream of consciousness. So I'm very out of my depth now. You can tell I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm drowning here because I've had very, very few of these experiences. Uh, but that, that is a possibility, apparently. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I'm trying to imagine what that would be like, which inevitably is virtually impossible because by definition, non-duality means an absence of subject and object. Yes. So it would be subject being aware of subject. Yeah, so anyone who says, <laughs> anyone who goes, I am in the clear light. If you ever had that experience, you're not. If you say, I am in the clear light, you're not. You might be conscious sleeping because you can be conscious in stage two of sleep where you go, oh, I'm asleep, but there's no dreams. The clear light experience is a negation of experience. So there'll be an entry point. You'll know the entry point. Then there'll be a blackout experience. Uh, and then there'll be a sense of recalibration. And then it's only a real master who can confirm that that blackout experience was the clear light because it's a negation. So your sense of self wasn't there. So it's kind of, it, it's described in terms of what it's not rather than terms of what it is which is, again, why I get very out of my debt. Yeah. But like someone like Lama Yeshe, these real yeah, yeah. high Tibetan ma or high masters, they can confirm when you've been in clear light. So they've obviously been there themselves. I mean, non-duality itself, the word non-duality, they, they use a negation because you can't describe yeah. it in the usual, it's a thing <laughs> or an object yeah. sense. But the only way you can describe it, although no words can do justice, I suppose, is awareness, pure awareness, objectless awareness, being aware of itself. That's, yes. that's pretty much as close as you can get, I imagine. Very good. Perfect <laughs> which is, description. Which, which is hard to get your head around. In fact, it's impossible to get your head around, and that's the whole point of it, I suppose. But uh, anyway, yeah. well, listen, Charlie, we've reached the top of the mountain, as it were. That's been a real joy talking to you. But listen, I know you've um, written so many books. As I said, I've um, been really enjoying reading one of yours recently until it sort of uh, played merry havoc with... Uh, Oh yeah, the sleep problems I was already having with my baby. So I'll park that just for a while. But can you just give us a quick recap of all the books you've done, but also your courses as well and your retreats and also where people can find out more about you? Because I know all this stuff is so valuable. Yeah, sure. So the first book is Dreams of Awakening. Uh, and that's here, actually. 
The reason it's here is because I'm doing a 10th anniversary uh, second edition of this, which will come out uh, summer next year. This is for like, if anyone's into the kind of spiritual side of lucid dreaming, then that's the one, Dreams of Awakening. Then I did a follow-up, uh, Lucid Dreaming Made Easy, which is like an idiot's guide to lucid dreaming. You know, one of those, where really quick start, loads of cool stuff, like how food affects lucid dreaming and a bit more kind of pop stuff. Uh, and then the shadow book, Dreaming Through Darkness. That's probably my most important book. If someone were to say, Desert Island, which one of your books? So Dreaming Through Darkness. Because it's got all the waking state shadow integration stuff, you know, dealing with your stuff, integrating your trauma, dealing with your childhood, dealing with your relationship with your parents, dealing with your relationship to sexuality. And then in the back, it's got all the lucid dreaming techniques too. So actually that's, that's like the best book, I think. But it's the least well-selling because it's about the shadow. And no one wants to look at their shadow. They're like, no way, I don't want to go there. But I'd advise that one. Uh, and then the fourth book is Wake Up to Sleep, which is based on all this, the, the protocol I developed for the military veterans. So that's for people with stress or trauma affected sleep. And then, yeah, there's online courses. There's that's one fun. with Mind Valley, one with the Wake Academy. And then, yeah, I do live retreats, uh, the kind of flagship one of these four day lucid dreaming sleepover retreats, where the first half of the night you sleep in your room. And then, if you want, it's totally optional. Only about half the group choose to do it. But 10 30 to 3 30, you're in your room. And at 3 30, you wake yourself up. You come into the sacred sleeping area where you have bed number two, and then I guide you back into the dream state in 90-minute sections. I wake you up and guide you back in kind of four times a night. Um, really good way of kind of maximizing your chances of getting lucid. Uh, and I do live online uh, stuff as well. Awesome. All quality stuff. Charlie, listen, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. It's been a real pleasure, so I really appreciate it. Thank you, man. This has been really, really fun. You are such brilliant questions. It's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Charlie Morley. I'd love to hear your thoughts and lucid dream experiences. Do get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com. And I'm at Simon Mundy on social media. 